Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Author Will Kostakis' first novel was rejected at the age of 11. Unfazed, he entered a poetry competition adopting the pseudonym of his older brother and subsequently won, quickly learning the value of pretending to be someone else. With each new novel, Will continues to question the importance of identity, his own included, and how the search for a sense of self often defines the teenage experience. In his latest book, The Sidekicks, Will tells the story of three young guys dealing with the death of a shared best friend. It is an honest and humorous offering, a rich insight into the world of an all-boys high school, as well as into the real life of Will Kostakis himself. Hello, Will, and thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. And I completely forgot about that poetry anecdote. I'm just like, wait, has he done his research wrong? And I'm like, no, I remember this because I was too young to enter it. And then my older brother entered it. He won the prize money and he kept it. <laughs> so I both won and lost $150 in a very short space of time. So a, a lesson for life there, yes. Will. <laughs> my brother is a dirtbag. <laughs> So tell me about identity, because with each new book, you seem to have reinvented yourself. Um, you, your story is, of course, that you were the winner of the 2005 Sydney Morning Herald Young Writer of the Year Award, which then you pushed on, and by 2007, you were published in your final year of high school. So you became known as the young author, first published while in high school. But that has changed as you've moved older. Yeah. So... That's the thing. I like to call myself the Madonna of young adult literature <laughs> in that I'm changing so much. But it's more that it's not that I'm changing. It's that I'm being more comfortable in my own skin. Because, you know, when I was first published, I was so I got the book deal at 17 and the book came out when I was 19. Nobody is their final self at 17, alone 19 or in their mid 20s. And, you know, I, I would like to say that I'm I become more comfortable in my skin the more I write through something. So for me, it's a process of I'll promote a book, then I'll go away and write another one for two years, come back, and I am more comfortable in myself because of those two years that I've spent writing. And so with each time, you know, I've been changed by the experience I've had through publication. Like Loathing Lola was very much my, please love me, I'm going to be super successful. And then the book came out and I was not super successful. And I took that really well. Red. I did not take that well at all. Um, what, what, what does that do to a 19-year-old at that time who, oh, who has ambitions of grandeur oh, and wanting to have a castle? There's, there's something really fun about going to a publishing meeting and them saying, we really think you don't need to write anything for five or so years, which was very much code for please leave and never come back. And um, it was great because I needed that time off. That was possibly the best advice I've ever been given. But it was, it, it jolted me awake because that's the thing. I was the creative writer in high school. I was, and then, you know, I won the Sydney Morning Herald Prize and I'm like, great, I'm the creative writer in the state. And so, you know, I had quite the ego at a young age. And I think that sort of, you know, stepping out into the world and stumbling, you know, was a really great experience for me because there's nothing worse than getting everything you want the first time around. And I don't think I'd be writing the novels that I'm writing now if I had succeeded 
at 19. And I think that's important. How did that affect you when you went to university? Because you, you, you went off to study media studies and things. So you walk into the door, oh, throwing oh, them open to oh, management oh, and going, no, I am no, a published no, author. No. And then suddenly going, and no one cares. <laughs> better, better. It was, so I was going into uni. I was a published author, but the book hadn't come out yet. So I had all the smugness, but <laughs> no evidence of it. So, um, when you go into a tute, they're always like, it's a first year tute. So like, okay, we're going to go around the circle, say something about you. And obviously I'm going to say, hey, yeah, I've signed a book deal with Pan Macmillan. You know, now I hear that and I'm like, that is the cringiest thing ever. But back then I thought, like, yeah, that's, that's going to be my fun fact. And so I'd say that in a room and instantly the room would hate me. And um, then halfway through university, so it was a four-year degree, second year the book came out. And... Um, the smugness didn't go away <laughs> uh, quite so fast. I remember I was in a I was in a third year uh, tute, and someone was making this ridiculous argument that all of Shakespeare's works are really about homosexuality because uh, men on stage were depicting women. And wow, so and this, this and would like, immediately resonate with you, given and, the influence that yeah. Shakespeare's had on your work. And I'm like, that is an amazingly long bow to draw. And I was like, you can't say that. He's like, oh, yes, I can. I'm a writer. And he was like, and I was like, oh, really? What have you published? He's like, oh, nothing. I just write for fun. I had just come back from a school, so I had my own book in my bag. And so I took it out and slammed it on the desk. And it's like, well, I am actually a writer and I'm not going to say that. And I just remember the feeling of the room and I was like, oh, I'm an asshole. <laughs> so, you know. 20-year-old me, not the nicest person. Um, but again, it did shape me and it did everything I learnt from university, you know, went into my work. There was a big part of being a writer isn't just the writing and the composing. It's going out and it's the promotion. It's all these life skills. So choosing a media and communications degree for me, while it was supposed to be the backup, so I'd pivot into journalism if this didn't work out, I actually learnt so much about what I need to do as a writer to get out there. In in what way? Um, just, well, most of the time it's if I'm, say, writing an article because that's the thing, you don't get interviewed by the Sydney Morning Herald anymore. You get an email that says, hey, write about your five best, your five favourite novels and we'll publish it, you know. So the idea of being interviewed, say, in this sort of setting is very rare. Most of the time I'm writing articles and sending them off and things like that. So for me, everything that I learned at university was very, very important. And, you know, I'm learning things like don't bury the lead. You know, I'm learning things like, hey, you know, I failed radio <laughs> when I was at uni, or well, very close to failing it because I have that, you know, listen to that beautiful How voice. How do you fail radio? Listen to my voice. It's like my balls half dropped and decided <laughs> stuff it, that'll do. Like, <laughs> it's horrible. And, uh, only one today, Will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the worst. And so, but I learned all these skills that I've now had to apply to my career slowly but surely. And do you think that time has informed your writing style? I mean, let's look at the, the latest book, which is The Sidekicks. Mm -hmm. At times it clicks into a narrative being described via film writing, so yep. screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Now, did you do any of that? Did that help you? Um, the big thing from that is because a lot of that stuff is personal experience. So there was actually, a so for those who aren't familiar with the book The Sidekicks, one of the characters is grieving through the raw footage of a film that he made with a deceased friend. And that was very much my experience. We literally made a film together 
and I was the horrible M. Night Shyamalan control freak director, and then he died. And so I was stuck reliving our friendship in found footage. And so when it came time to putting that on the page, you know, ideally I would have loved to have been writing this as a script so you could sort of see that, but I needed to express that visually on the page. And when you're talking about a past, him, a character in the present looking at himself in the past, it was very difficult to sort of be like, oh, this is me now. Oh, that was me in the past. And so I needed to sort of separate them. And that's when writing part of that final part of the book in script form allowed me to separate the past from the present. And what was that film like that you made back in year 10? Oh, it was... It, it taught me the most about storytelling you know, that nothing else has taught me. It was, um, it was very much for the judges. So I, uh, you know, researched what the judges would like, all the artsy-fartsy film stuff, all the postmodern referential stuff, like where you needed to watch 50 different films to understand what the hell was going on. And on top of that, instead of writing a 15-minute film, I wrote a 45-minute film and then tried to edit it down to 15 minutes. So it is a total mess like complete and utter like sometimes i watch it and go this is genius i completely understand what's going on here and other times i watch it and i'm like i have i wrote this i started in this i edited this i have no idea what's happening on the screen right now <laughs> so it's really fascinating um i, I can relate i i made a video for my hsc project uh-huh, yeah. um this is back when videotapes were vhs and yeah. you know, massive cameras and all the rest mm-hmm. of it and it played, and I was so immensely proud of this Lynchian sort yeah. of piece of work uh-huh. that made no sense, uh-huh. that basically sucked all the energy and life out of a room. Yeah. No, so that's the thing, though. So I had to watch the – so I was convinced I was going to win. And, you know, I <laughs> so, was – So ego's never been a problem. No, never, no. <laughs> and, it's, and the film got a perfect score. But the problem is they played it at the film festival at the school. Nobody clapped. Wow. The parent behind me said, what the F was that? Not realising I was sitting in front of her. And I learnt so much about the importance of you can be the smartest hybrid. You can tell the the cleverest story, but if it doesn't connect on an emotional level, it doesn't connect at all, period. That's it. And it taught me so much. And the thing was, it got to the point where going into the festival, I was the winner of best film. After they heard the audience's reaction, they were like, oh, best film is now shared with another film that got lots of applause. And so... I I learned some very important lessons, one about the judging of festivals and prizes, but two about sort of writing stories that make people feel things is so much more important than writing a story that tells people how smart you think you are. And that was something that I had to learn then and it sort of shaped how I then wrote my Sydney Morning Herald story the following year and it shaped the way that I then started to write my novel. But each of your pieces of writing are very deeply personal. So it, it does seem to carry that element of you are writing for yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bing Me, which yeah. is the story from the Sydney Morning Herald piece, yeah. is a very personal interpretation of the nature of social media mm-hmm. and connecting with someone overseas and yeah. believing they may or may not be into you. Yeah. And then you question, that's why I say you really have been questioning the sense of identity from the very beginning. The story behind that, though, is really horrible, but also great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had my three written stories because you had to submit. I submitted one story 
that won the semifinals and then they're like, okay, or the regionals. And they're like, okay, now you need to write three or two other stories and submit a portfolio. And I had my portfolio and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is good. I was quite happy. And then I was on back in the days of MSN Messenger. I was on MSN and my friend was like, oh, you know, I've met this guy and we're in love. Oh, and I'm like, okay, right. And she's like, yeah, no, we, we met on the internet. And I'm just like, okay, wait a second. I then quit the MSN conversation, wrote this story and then sent it to her. <laughs> and she's like, that's mean, but it's also very funny. And I'm just like, okay. And so I workshopped it. And then, so it basically it came from my friend saying that the night before it was due. And it comes down to, you know, writing stories that make people feel things and writing things that are important in the moment. And so I had to choose between one of my three other stories that I didn't like, got rid of it, slotted that one in, and that's the one that ended up winning. And now I read it and I cringe <laughs> because it's very much a product of the time. Like it uses the word retard as a descriptor for yes. someone. And I'm just like, that is not a thing that we do. And that is not a thing that the City Morning Herald should have ever published. Like, you know, it's just really fascinating. But it's it's a nice little... I'm capsule. Do you ever like to go back and look at your early work? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So there's this really wonderful time period where I gave up after like my 700th rejection from a publisher in like year nine, I gave up creative writing for a little bit, not gave up creative writing, gave up writing novels. And so I just, and I didn't really have time. So I was writing poetry and it's really great because I have this collection of, and they're all numbered in the order in which I wrote them. So it's really great because I can sort of trace a line through my childhood through this poetry and most of it is whingy whiny crap that's <laughs> hilarious to read now like really just funny and it's like oh you know it's complaining about stuff that just are non-issues in life you know stuff that you complain about in year nine stuff that's uh, <laughs> that is important in yeah, year important nine. and you yeah. know totally shaping who you are but also not important important in the slightest but then there's that moment where at the end of year 10 my best friend passes away and suddenly i have the stages of my grief captured from poem to poem and it's really because i can i can see the point where i stop sort of crying about it but then i start thinking about it and then i can see myself almost maturing in real time i say almost maturing because listen to me <laughs> i'm not quite there yet but you know and i'm really glad that i have that preserved and every so often i go back to them and i can sort of relive that childhood and you know i have to restrain myself from editing the poems but it's really fascinating to have these sort of artifacts from my childhood because every time I sit there and go, what is a teenager like? Because I write predominantly, yes, I write young adult literature, which is largely read by adults, but my primary focus is teens and ideally my primary audience is teenagers. And so to sort of get into that mindset, I have preserved my teenage self, you know, it does all the annoying things that I hate my characters doing. But, you know, it's really nice to have it there in a nice little Word document. But that must be quite wonderful because, you know, so many of us, when we think back on our teen years, we, we almost reframe who we were. We Definitely. rewrite our history. Of course. There's all these, like, one of the fascinating things from the sidekicks was that uh, one of the characters, he doesn't use contractions at all. He doesn't say don't he said he says this is do miles not. yes the, yeah, the, miles. the film yeah student. and so he's very much that sort of um he just always tries his hardest to seem like the cleverest person in the room and it's that sort of 
young person version of cleverness where it's like, if I don't contract this word, then I am smart, which is very much, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. But it's even to the next step, which is, and I'm therefore better than Than you, (laughs) which is a huge thing within a boys' school of, 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 you know, trying to be one up on another, whether it be through sport, whether it be through education or behaviour. Well, he's found his lane and he's like, this is it. And everyone at home is listening going, okay, I'm drawing a line between young Will and Miles and I don't see a difference. But, um, yeah, and I did that and a lot of reviewers who weren't teenagers were like, no teenager would speak like this. And I'm like, yeah, they do. I meet them every day when I tour, one. And two, it's just that whole we imagine our best selves when we look back, you know, with rose-coloured glasses at our teen years. And, you know, the whole thing about young adult literature is that they have to be able to make mistakes and they can't just all be you know, spewing out these really large words. Like back when I was a kid, we called it Dawson's Creek speak. Because even as teenagers, we would watch Dawson's Creek and say, no teenager speaks like this. You read some young adult books now and that's still very much alive today when a lot of authors are writing about the teens they wish they were, which is great. But that's, I don't think that's writing stories for the teens that exist today. It's it's an interesting point you've made in regards to adults reading the book and then saying no one speaks like that. Because even when I read the book, I struggled initially because I was actually finding that Miles was a bit, had sociopathic tendencies. And some of that is because of the language choices that he makes. Yeah. But you do get into the rhythm and yeah. you're right. You, you remember there was that kid yeah. who that's what he held over us, yeah. which was he was more cultured or more informed or more educated. And the big thing is it's that whole I wanted the reader to, for those that are unfamiliar with the book, it is told from three different perspectives, but it's not alternating chapters. You get 20,000 word, almost novellas of each character's perspective and you spend two-thirds of the book judging this kid and being like, I don't understand how he is like he is. And then you get to the third part and you start reading from his perspective and instantly you judge him. You sit there and you go, I do not like you. And... That's the perspective that everybody else has of him, but they never move past it. And my hope is that some readers read his section and do not move past that, but others start to notice the sadness that informs a lot of his decisions and they start to sort of see who he is by the end and hopefully warm to him because, I don't know, in terms of my teenage self, I am closer to Miles than any of the others, which is really funny because like, no, you're the gay author, you're the gay character. I'm like, yeah, the gay character is more me in my early 20s. The Harley is me after a couple of drinks. So he's the rebel character. Because we should define there's yeah, the athlete, the rebel, rebel and, and the, the nerd. nerd. So the athlete is closeted and struggling with being known as the gay athlete. You have the rebel who's just, you know, the rebel without a cause, but with the heart of gold. <laughs> and um, the final person is Miles, who is the the intellectual, the smartest person in the room, and he'll tell you that he's the smartest person in the room. And a lot of Miles was me going back to that person that I portrayed myself as, you know, to sort of lift myself up above other people uh, when I was a teenager. And, you know, it's me looking crit- critically at my own experiences, and that's uncomfortable. It was... It might be uncomfortable to read, but it was very uncomfortable for me to write. <laughs> was it, were there any risks involved in putting his story at the as the third section of the book so that you are ending the book with him? So you've just talked lot, about... There are lots of people who've come out and said, I really love it until his section. And I'm like, oh, but I think he has the emotional punches of the, say, you know, 
the whole book is about perspective. The whole book is about, you know, not judging people. And, you know, the whole book is about looking at the way people see the world. And there is no one way or one lens through which to see the world. And Miles is as much a part of that as the other two boys are. But the thing is, Miles has to deal with this idea that he has footage. He has actual evidence that his best friend did not like him. And it's all about him trying to reconcile that. And the reason why Miles came last was because Miles' section is actually the oldest part of the book. I wrote that as my mate. You mentioned your video, HSC Major Work. Miles' section was my HSC Major Work. It started off as a script, but the school was like, no, you won Young Writer of the Year. You need to write a story. So I'm like, okay, fine. And so I wrote Miles' as a short story. And so that was a six to 8,000 word story. And it was actually like really bleak because the ending was not as hopeful as it is in the book. Um, I don't want to name the scene, but there's a scene that people come to where Miles, basically it's, he chooses to believe something and he, there's a certain action that he does. That was the original end point for the book. And the short story. Wow. It worked well for the short story, but for the book after 60,000 words, you're reading it going, that is really bleak and really sad. <laughs> and so I went back and in the second draft, I sort of fleshed it out and I gave him a more hopeful ending. That's not really that hopeful if you really look at it, but yeah. it, it, I mean, it is a strong ending. It, it, I, I found it very powerful. It is hopeful, mm-hmm. but it's also fraught with the danger of what reality is. Yeah. And what comes next. And I think that is possibly the, the real, for me, the basis of the book, which is all these young men are on the precipice of having to leave the safety of school mm-hmm. and each other. Yeah. And they're terrified, absolutely terrified of what, what comes next. How important do you think it is to try and teach young men to have a language of how to communicate their emotion? Well, not just young men, young people in general, but again, for this book, it was you know, it was looking at those sort of deficiencies in education at the moment where, you know, take, you know, same sex, sex education is, you know, completely woeful when it, in schools. Like, you know, most of the things I learned about being gay, I learned from older partners, which, you know, we don't expect of heterosexuals. So it's, um, and in terms of what to expect of life beyond school, you know, we're just told, get a good ATAR and you'll be fine. And, you know, focus on what you're good at and you'll be fine. But I'm starting to realise and a lot of people I went to school with are starting to realise that that is largely a lie. And um, there is no security, there's no safety net. And if you do get a good mark, there's no guarantee of a job. There's If you are a good friend, there's no guarantee that those friends will be good to you. And I wanted to look at all that sort of stuff, but in a way that's not completely depressing. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, there's yeah. enormous humour, as I said in the introduction. You know, it's a very funny book. And that comes through the relationships and how these how boys relate to each other, which is yeah. this constant ribbing and yeah. sarcasm that rolls on. And that's friendship. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that is important for for young people to read and say that's normal, yeah. as well as for adults to read and understand. And I was interested that you said that you're finding more adults are reading, yet you're writing for young people. Yeah, but that's that's young adults more generally. Right. Like you go on the train, like of course teens are reading Hunger Games, but on the commute to work, the new Hunger Games book comes out or Harry Potter and the Cursed Child script comes out and who's reading it on the train? It's adults. And... 
there are some just wild statistics. I don't know them off the top of my head, but largely adults are buying young adult books, whether they're then giving them to young adults, we don't know. But And you're getting these books that you read them and they're like, this is not a teenage story. Why are teenagers acting them out? <laughs> like at no point during the third or fourth Twilight book are you thinking, oh, yeah, this is a book for teenagers. <laughs> like it's just that, you know. So I'm just very mindful that while adults are a huge part of my readership, I need to make sure that I'm writing a story that will speak to and speak for teenagers. Well, you go into a lot of high schools and mm-hmm. you also go into primary schools as yep. well. So what do you do when you go in there and why are you going there? Um, why I'm going there, it's basically you release a book, you get a month's worth of media coverage and then that's it. If you don't do anything, the book doesn't do anything. And so when I first started, it was very much I need to go to school so that I can connect with my audience, you know, show them what my book is so they can hopefully go out and buy it. But the reality of being an author in Australia is that, you know, for my fourth book, my advance was less than $10,000. So to write a book for two years to then get $10,000, and that's an advance on future earnings. And, you know, the earnings are 10% of the cover price of a book, so I'm not exactly rolling in it. Um, Being an author, a big part of my livelihood is going to schools and speaking and getting paid for those engagements. So um, whether it be teaching a workshop to a smaller class or doing a year-level address, a big part of the finances of being an author in Australia because we don't have the audience. So we're not buying enough books to support people through their writing. Sure, there are the occasional books like, say, Jasper Jones or, you know, Hannah Kent's latest release that people flock to and buy and it's enough to then sustain that author to write their next book. That is not the reality for young adult authors in Australia, where we have to tour, we have to sort of, you know, talk, keep our names in, you know, our readers' consciousness. And sometimes that pays dividends. You know, sometimes you then break through and you become Andy Griffiths, where that relentless touring means that people then buy your books and your latest book becomes the fastest selling Australian book ever. But for others, that doesn't happen. For others, you're still in your 30s, 40s, 50s walking into a room and introducing yourself after your seventh, eighth, ninth release. And that's just a reality of the marketplace. And to make money as an Australian author, you need to be a good speaker, which is really cruel. Because <laughs> cruel. publishers are like, yes, you need to focus on your craft. You need to be very, you know, just very introspective and, you know, sit in your attic and write. But also, here's this. 40 stop tour in the next three days so it's taking the introvert and forcing them to be the extrovert and it's just really like i love the sound of my own voice but even for me it was really really difficult to do and it, it pains me where there are some authors that are so wonderful on the page and they're just really you know introverted and then you're like okay and now you need to talk to 400 kids go and it's just there's no training there's no and I like to think I became a really great public speaker because I stuffed up my first speaking event. What, ha- what, what, um, what happened? I was invited to speak uh, for the State Library of Victoria for, a, for the Words and Music Festival. And my book, had, Loathing Lola, had nothing to do with music. And you could say the words on the page weren't particularly good. So <laughs> I didn't really have much of a leg to stand on. But I tried to gave, give my talk. I remember at some point I mentioned Danny Minogue because... <laughs> 
an author who was there still jokes about it to this day. And after I gave a 40-minute address, the librarian put up her hand during the Q&A and said, yes, but what's the title of your book? And by then I, and someone literally fell asleep <laughs> in the front row. Like, granted, it was an event at night, but still, it was... So, so your life has been defined by specific reviews, that which is the film, <laughs> one which is another one Well, it's, I wouldn't say reviews, but I would just say failure defines who we are. <laughs> like, that's it. Like you, you either fail, keep failing and become the president of the United States, yes, or well you fail, learn from it, and then win the popular vote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, work oh, all your life. Topical, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, well played. Starkers, well played. <laughs> So, so let me ask you, what do you get, though, from these kids that you go and speak to? And I shouldn't say kids because, I mean, the kids are primary yeah. kids, but the teens are teens and these people have views on the world and are asking questions and they've got ambitions and fears. So what do you get when you talk to them? I, the one thing I've learnt from touring schools is that teenagers are sharper and smarter than we give them credit for. They are more engaged in the world then we give them credit for. I don't think education has shifted along with the world that we live in now that is interconnected and that has the internet and that kids can access information that they once couldn't access. And um, they can share experiences with each other. And, you know, I think we're very much still teaching in isolation where what student, the only things students know are what they learn from their teachers, which is not a thing anymore. <laughs> I go into schools and learn more from the kids. Like I remember I was speaking at a school the same day that Damn Daniel became a meme. Do you remember that? Like it's a video where this L- kid- Look is, at you know, me, Will. I don't understand <laughs> memes. <laughs> it's just this kid saying, Damn Daniel, you know, kicking it back with the white Vs or whatever. Like it still goes over my head. But I was giving a talk and every five seconds a kid shouted out, Damn Daniel. <laughs> I was just like, why does everyone keep making that noise? Um, but- you know, and you have to sort of learn and grow from it. And where, not to pivot to my sexuality, but hey, why not? Um, one of the big things that we're taught or that we're told from our politicians is that, you know, whenever you mention the idea of homosexuality in a school, it is almost like you're presenting them with a manual of how to be gay and that we're out for the convert. And um, that was something that I was very afraid of and I never mentioned anything to do with gayness in schools because I didn't want to be looking like I was trying to convert them. But um, How do you convert someone to gay them? Well, it's a three-step process. <laughs> um, <laughs> first, they revoke my working with children's certificate. Um, so that was always my mindset and I was always very afraid of it. And I remember I was speaking at a school and, you know, I'd written a gay character in the first third and... It was a year ten. It was year ten cohort, so it was a group of year ten girls. So I'm sure they've been introduced to the concept of, you know, homosexuality in the world. Um, and their teacher came up to me, and they'd read the book, so they'd read about a gay character. And she was like, "Oh, we'll, you know, talk about whatever you like, but please don't mention the gay character." And I'm what, like, "What does that do to you as, as a closeted as a closeted?" Kid, I was just man. like, "Oh, this is lovely." So not only is this my livelihood, but also. Talk about your experience, but don't talk about your experience. But it's it's condemning you at the same time. It's yeah. condemning your choices as but well as saying also, don't talk about who you are. But it's also that by assuming my heterosexuality, you know, and just sitting there and I'm just in like, okay, I, I need to play this role now. This is horrible. And it's just how effortless they said it, like it was nothing. And so I went in and I was like, okay, I'll respect the school's choice. 
um, I was giving my talk and I'm like, okay, great. So who's your favorite character? Girl puts up her hand. And I'm like, oh, okay. And um, I'm like, yeah, who's your favorite character? And she names the gay character. And I'm just thinking, oh, crap. And so I try to pivot and I try to move on. And while we're still talking, and I'm like, okay, what was your favorite scene? Anyone? No one else raises her their hand, but that girl does. And I'm like, oh no, please don't. And I'm like, yep, okay, what was your what was your favorite scene? She's like, oh, I like the scene when he had sex with the boy. And I'm like, oh, I'm never getting invited back to this school. And so I'm freaking out. But I'm like, you know what? Instead of pivoting, I sit there and I think, wait, wait, wait. Why did this that scene connect with you? Like I, I assumed she was a heterosexual girl. And I was like, what was it about that scene that connected with you as a 15, 16, 17-year-old um, girl? And so I asked her, why was that scene, you know, what, what was it about that scene? She's like, oh, it just, it made me understand my friend Sam a little bit better. And that's the thing. If you look at the HSC syllabus, it's, or at least as it stands now, the English syllabus is very much, you know, immersion, immersion in different cultures. So you've got, you know, what it's like to be a refugee, what it's like to um, come from different cultures, what's it like, what it's like to experience persecution, what it's like to experience war. The only thing they don't touch on is different sexualities or different sexual experiences. And um, that is a really glaring omission because it's a human experience. Um, And I realized then that with all those other things, we read about those stories and we're like, okay, that's what it's like to be a refugee. Or, oh, that's what it's like to be persecuted during war. And we learn and grow from it. We don't then go, oh, I now identify as a refugee, you know. And the big problem is, is that with gayness, it's different. With gayness, it's if you expose them to it, they're going to sort of become that. Not really realizing that, Kids who are gay already know. <laughs> They're already seeking that stuff out. They can Google the um, the geometry of sex, the practical how-to guide of, you know, how to do it, and they can see it. And I think we're not following through with the emotional side, the, the emotional education. And I realized then when that girl said that, that she connected with her friend Sam a bit more, I realized it was about empathy. And I realized that, you know, She's no gayer than she was before she read the book. But she understands what it's like for the gay people in her life. And she will change and she will become a better person because of it. So not only are you showing the gay kids who read it, oh, there's a place for me in this world. You're also showing the straight kids, hey, this world is for sharing and this is what other people's experiences are like. There are moments in the sidekick, sorry, sidekicks, where a character reveals he's gay. Mm-hmm. And really, the school just, the boys within mm-hmm. the school, essentially just shrug their shoulders. Yep. And it's a wonderful change in attitude to see mm-hmm. in a novel because the drama is not about him being gay. The drama remains that they've lost their best friend yep. and they're trying to work out how to deal with that and how to communicate. But most of the homophobic stuff you actually hear is from the staff at the school, which, you know, a lot of that was verbatim at a school that I was speaking at early last year where there were, there's an exchange in the book that when I, every time I read it, it makes me cringe because I'm like, that doesn't sound natural, but it was verbatim what was going on. Like I was sitting in the staff room and the teacher came in going, oh, sometimes I wish I was a lesbian. And the other teacher was like, oh, why? And she's like, oh, because, you know, then I'd have double the wardrobe. And the other teacher goes, yeah, but at what cost? And the, girl, the other teacher was like, oh, yeah, no, you're right, my soul. 
And I was sitting there just like, oh, that is horrible. And I'm sitting there and there was a gay staff member there and we're both just sitting there just like, oh, like that is the worst. <laughs> and I put that in the book and the thing is that there is that disconnect. I spoke at another religious school after the the Wilkes Darkest gay stuff happened. Yes, which, which we will, we will, get will to, talk the big about, reveal you know. of 2016. Um, so I came out in a blog post that wasn't gay enough for one gay media publication because I didn't use the word gay. <laughs> so <laughs> I put it so I put it on my blog instead. It's, it seems um, to be a very fine line that yeah. you get criticised for being gay and criticised <laughs> for not being gay enough. Have you not read the book reviews for this? It's the gay book that isn't gay enough. Um, <laughs> Um, not gay enough for the older readers. Not- but maybe that's the new pull quote for when they republish. <laughs> gay, just just not-, not gay enough. <laughs> no, you just have two quotes juxtaposed. <laughs> too gay, not gay enough. <laughs> um, but I remember after that, and I was just very mindful of ever mentioning it because I was at this school as the writer in residence. So I had signed a contract as a basically a teacher and one of the standard Catholic school, you know, rules is you will not teach anything or say anything that is not in keeping with the teachings of the Catholic church. And, you know, if I wanted the paycheck, I had to sign it. And so, you know, I did, but, and not expecting to come out by the time I finished the um, contract. And so halfway through the contract, you know, the story's all over the age and I'm just like, oh, this is the worst. And so I'm giving a talk and the teacher was like, oh, let's do a Q&A. And I'm like, let's not. <laughs> now, like, now is not so, the time. Yeah, now is not the time. So we did a Q&A and this girl puts up her hand and this is year nine. So again, you know, year nine girls do not know what homosexuality is. And so speaking and this girl puts up her hand and she's like, oh, we found your blog. And this is a Q and A, not just with a class. This is two hundred girls are sitting there. I'm just like, oh, that's a that's that's a thing to say. And I try to pivot and move on. And she's like, no, 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 you don't understand. We really, really like your blog. And most of the girls in the room had no idea what she was talking about. But there was a pocket of about ten girls sitting up the back who were just nodding. And it was their way of saying that it was a safe space and that they were cool with it but they said it in a way that did not break any rules, that did not make me say anything that I didn't have to. And um, I was just like, oh, I want to cry now. And it was so just that, really sweet. That must be deeply touching yeah. to see that it, your art and your self-revelation has an impact on others. Yeah, and it's just... And the fact was that they had more guts than most of the teachers I've ever encountered. And it, it is that it comes back to that disconnect between how the, the world that some of the teachers are in and the world that the students are in. I always say that we're existing, the kids that are growing up now, it's a post glee world for all the, you know, crimes against narrative storytelling that glee committed. <laughs> glee did a really great job of just reflecting the world and being like hey this is it and that was in prime time like that was on channel 10 and it wasn't a character coming out wasn't say like dawson's creek where it was a three episode arc and it was the most important must-see yeah. scandal it was just yeah she kissed a girl and and that's the thing these kids grew up on that they that was on a seven thirty time slot on a wednesday like that's why is it acceptable for that to be on tv on channel 10 but you write about it. No, they can't read it in a school. Like the sidekicks is in the adults only section of a school library that 
doesn't have any adult students <laughs> and if it does then there's a problem at that school but you I, know. i'm also now intrigued by what what is covered in an adults only section in a high, but that's it high it makes school. it seem like it's really like sexually deviant but it's just you know it's just the themes like having a gay character reflected in a positive light like he doesn't have sex there's i think one or two kiss scenes if that like i think yeah i think it's two all up and um everything is gently implied but they have it in the adults only section and the librarian was like, oh, and I actively asked the teachers to borrow it. And I'm like, that's not enough. I'm not trying to change the attitudes of the teachers. The times for that. The teachers should know by now. They should should, know. Teachers shouldn't think being gay is a bad thing because if a kid is having a hard time at home, they will go to the teacher that they trust. And teachers need to step up and, you know, teach for the world they live in. But it's really funny that you get um, more conservatives who are just like, no, 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 schools are just for learning, just just maths and science and all the other stuff that we learn in schools. And But there is this expectation that you will get a whole education when you go to school. But, I mean, you studied things like Fight Club in Year 10, yeah. which is a very subversive, aggressive, yeah. powerful novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, at the same time as things like, you know, George Orwell's work, of course, I mean, these all have deeply sexual overtones and, you know, aggressive attacks on society. Mm -hmm. You know, being gay isn't going to bring down society. Mm -hmm. But the funniest thing is read Fight Club now and it is the gayest text ever. Like, and Chuck Palahniuk is like, oh, I didn't realize I was gay when I wrote it. I'm like, oh, really? Really? Well, I read it now and it's like, yeah. (laughs) Completely. Um, but yeah, no, it is this. The last thing that is unacceptable, we can have kids read texts with vivid rape scenes. We can have them, you know, really contemplate war. Like that is not beneath, that is not above them. But suddenly talking about two boys kissing and it not being bad is one step too far. So how did this... 2016 was Mm -hmm. a very big year for you because you came out. Mm -hmm. And this, again, comes back to the original conversation about identity, Mm -hmm. which is you were originally the young author who was published at high school. Now it seems you're being pitched almost or positioned as the young gay author. Well, you missed the young Greek author. That was was my middle income. That was when I... um, So first first book flopped. And so you're like, okay, so we've got to sort of remodel you and, you know, let's... I'm gonna, I had to write something a bit more Greek because no one can say my surname. Kudos to you for saying it right. Um, and it was like, okay, William Kostakis sounds too old, so we'll make it Will Kostakis. And suddenly it was really young and hip. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I was Will Kostakis, the Greek author. And what I always was annoyed at myself about was I was really comfortable being Will Kostakis, the Greek but if I even thought about Will Kostakis the gay, like <laughs> that would make me feel uncomfortable. And that was that sort of, I was wrestling with myself. Like, why do I feel uncomfortable with something that I really like? And that is just the word to describe what I like. Um, and so every time I write a book, I'm more comfortable and I'm just sort of more personal. It just, it's just a natural part of the process for me. And so second book rolled out. I was like, look how Greek I can be. And a little smidgen of gay I've snuck in there. And then a teacher tells me, oh, Will, I really love the character of Lucas, who's the gay character. And I'm like, oh, great. She's like, I just love that he just happens to be gay. It's not a part of who he is. And I'm sure she meant it as a compliment. But I was like, that is just you saying that he is as gay as you find acceptable. 
Whereas, you know, no one reads Twilight and goes, I really like that Bella just happens to be heterosexual. No, that book is about her heterosexuality. You know, it's also about her dating a 108-year-old, but no, that's okay. Two boys kissing, no. Um, so for me, I was just like, why does it, do they just happen to be gay? Like for me, the struggle, like I was struggling with coming out into my 20s. That's a story that still needs to be told because there are two parts two fields of thought one side of the equation is you know just happens to be gay have them be a super masculine sidekick who also just happens to be gay but it doesn't inform any of their stories and the other side coming from other perspectives are like oh yes we need gay stories but don't write another coming out story we have too many of those and it's just like yeah but if i had the coming out story for me then i wouldn't have needed to write it and I was struggling to coming out in my mid-20s the same time that people had no problem coming out on YouTube to wild praise. So why was I still hesitating? I wanted to write a story about that hesitation to come out. And while I was writing it, it became easy to sort of see what my hesitation, the shape that it took. But at the same time, I was still hesitating. And then the book came was about to come out. And I was like, right, no one had really read it and no one really knew what was in it. And because I kept it solely, this is about three boys dealing with grief. I didn't say, you know, because the whole point was that people were going to read the book and discover, you know, the reveal of gayness, you know, about 20 pages in, because that's the way that it's written. If you read it without that in mind, it's supposed to be a surprise. Um, Because again, it's all about perspective and, you know, what you expect. Um, And so while that was all happening, I realized I'd written a book where by the end of the writing process, I realized how foolish it was to stay in the closet, but I was going to release that book in the closet, which, you know, it's not really practicing what you preach. Not to say that what I'm writing is preaching, but what I'd learned through the writing process. And at that same time, my first ever partner was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And we're still close. And so um, I ended up really thinking about our relationship and um, that when we dated for those eight or nine months, every time someone bumped into us and I was like, oh no, this is my close friend, you know, and he just happens to be gay. (laughs) Um, And it was very much me downplaying his significance in my life, never met my friends, never met my family, all that sort of stuff. And so I realised that was really horrible and I always knew it was horrible, but it wasn't until... He almost, it felt like he was going to die or that it was a risk. I realized I need to, you know, atone for this or at least state it. And so I wrote an article about it, as I mentioned before, rejected by a gay publication because I mentioned being close friends, implying that that's what I was talking about. But, you know, there was a draft that I went back and rewrote and made it super gay. But I was like, no, 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 this is my coming out. I'm going to do it the way that I want. And so I put it on my website where it was never intended to go. And, but as you know, all the pieces fell together, a school that had invited me to do a book launch for the sidekicks read it and deemed that it was no, even though I hadn't mentioned that's what the book was about, deemed that launching the book there was no longer appropriate. So it was very much about my sexuality and the fear that what I'd written would be a manual and would be not appropriate for teenagers. And yeah, I just want to interrupt because there is a line in the book that really resonated and it's connecting to what you're saying here, which is one of the characters says, once I say it, I'll be in that box forever. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen as the gay kid. Mm-hmm. And that's why I ask, which is how long do you want to be known as the gay author before you do the next reinvention? I I think I'll always be the gay author and that if you told me that five years ago, I would have probably had an asthma attack. <laughs> but I think I need to be the gay author so the next gay kid who releases a novel is not just the gay author. And that's the thing. We exist. <laughs> there are lots of us. We are writing stories that you love. And, you know, I'm sorry, we can't wait for J.K. Rowling to explicitly state her characters are gay in her texts. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like um, That you can finish an entire series and yeah. then say, oh, didn't you realise Dumbledore and, was gay? And then come back and write the prequel and still not have his former partner or whatever in it and still not articulate it. It's just so, you know, I need to be the gay author. Like, it's it sucks, but... If it makes a kid who reads my writing feel less alone or if it, you know, if I have a fan who has feelings about gay people but likes my work and then realises that I'm gay and that changes the way he feels about gay people, hopefully it doesn't change how he feels about me, then that's good work to do and... We need to be visible and, you know, we're not going away no matter what George Christensen thinks. Like, we are here and, you know, it's important that we look at diverse voices and that we see these stories being told and teens and adults read them and learn from them and grow from them. So, yeah. Well, well, the one one thing I take great faith in is putting the gay Greek man together and looking at all three of your books is that one you have an, a great understanding of the human condition, but two more oh, importantly, yes, thank you. There, is a, there, is a, there is a wonderful <laughs> line that summed up my whole experiences with Greek families in the first third, mm-hmm. which was just simply, you know, why are you sad? We make moussaka, yeah. moussaka happy, yeah. and so I feel at least whenever you're going to be down, you're out there somewhere making gay moussaka. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. <laughs> Finally, just I just saw eggplant emoji. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, and I really look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you very much for having me. Terrific. Thank you. Cheers. And you can find Will Kostakis's books online and in stores. You can also follow him on Twitter and on Facebook. Go talk to him now. This has been James Ricards. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow Conversations with Writers on Twitter at ConversationsWW and also on Facebook. Mm-hmm.